Welcome to Soberholic, a podcast that deals with hope, healing, and happiness with your show host, Roger Bowes and Jason Rice. Today, our show is all about God turning a mess into a message as our very own co-host of Soberholic, Jason Rice, shares his struggles and victories with us. So let's just jump right into it. Jason, it's pretty cool that today we get to record this show on your birthday. Yeah, yeah. So how old are you? Uh, I don't know if I want to say or not. <laughs> nah, I'm 38. I hadn't hadn't gotten, uh, what is it? What's one is over the hill? I don't know. I'm 40 and I feel like I'm over the hill. I think it's 40 that's over the hill. Yeah, well, I take ibuprofen every morning <laughs> to get going, so I guess I'm over the hill. My back feels like I'm 70, so. Well, yeah. I bet that you never thought you'd live this long. No, I remember I remember being 25 or 26 and having the whole, I'm going to be like Kurt Cobain and Jimi Hendrix and all them that, you know, die when they're 27 and, you know, the whole legend in my own mind kind of thing going on. Uh, but yeah, I never thought I would see even 30. Right. So, but the legend that you was probably going to go down as was not Jimi Hendrix. No. Yeah. More like Al Capone or something like that, yeah. you know, just yeah. a, a big rap sheet or something. Yeah. Well, you know, today we're going to be talking about your story of, uh, about the things that happened in the past, you know, what happened and what it's like now, but every story begins um, with a beginning. And so how did your story begin? Well, I, I grew up in church. You know, my parents had me in church at a young age. And my story's, uh, I struggle with drugs and alcohol, but my story's different than a lot of people's. A lot of people, you know, they have the story of, you know, they, they smoked a joint or they drank a beer and they're 10 years old with their uncle or or they, they started drinking when they're 13 or 14 and partying and all that kind of stuff. Mine, I, I didn't, I didn't even touch alcohol until I was 20 years old. And so I kind of got started later and uh, my whole teenage years, you know, I was really involved in church and uh, I was like a leader in my youth group and, you know, was really on fire for God uh, for most of my teenage years. Like I was I was the guy that if you would have told me that I was going to become a drug addict and alcoholic, I would have laughed at you. Like, so you're like what what they call the Bible thumper. Oh, you know, man. Those years? Oh, yeah. And. I mean, I was, like, known as that, like, in my school. Like, I remember my senior year, me and one of my friends that um, was also a Christian and in the youth group or whatever, we went around to every um, – we, we wrote down the names of everybody in our class, in our senior class, and we showed up at their house to share Christ with them, like, in person. Which was great, you know. Right. As a Christian, that's yeah. what we're supposed to do. Yeah, and it, it was great. But, you know, when we were about halfway through the list, they started, you know, telling each other, hey, if they show up at your house, this is what they're doing. And uh, so, yeah, I was really, really on fire for the Lord during that whole time. And then I did what we see a lot of times. Uh, we, You know, people, kids go to college, and uh, that's kind of where my compromising started. Um, first two years of college were, were pretty good, you know. I, I, didn't, I didn't make too many compromises. Um, but then I started slowly making one compromise after another. The first was actually kind of small, but it was smoking cigarettes. Right. You know, that one was the first one. Uh, I kind of started smoking cigars first and then smoking cigarettes. And then, uh, of all people to start drinking with, I actually started drinking with other Christians, right? You know, that I went to church with. And so I kind of thought I was safe, you know, because of that. 
I was like, oh, I'm in a, you know, I'm, I'm here with my fellow believers. We're just having a, having a couple of drinks. It's, you know, no harm, no foul. And then before I knew it, you know, going out on Friday night turned into Friday night, Saturday night, and then Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. <laughs> and then it would just be like a random Tuesday and I'd just go to the bar by myself. A random Tuesday. Yeah. You know, I love the, how you say small compromises because, you know, I don't believe any of us really go to Miss Smith's third grade class and say, what do you want to be? Well, I want to be a drug addict when I grow up. No. I want to be an alcoholic when I grow up. No. You know, we all, we begin to make those compromises in our life. And, you know, I don't know that cigarettes make us a drug addict, but it is the compromises to where we justify, it's okay to do this. It's okay to do this next thing. And before you know it, you've hit the, the larger things that we we say is are the bad things in life. Oh, yeah. And to me, compromise is like a virus. It starts out really small, and then before you know it, it's just spread through your whole life. And, um, you know... I did have some friends come to me, you know, when they started seeing the signs that I was heading down the wrong path, uh, you know, early on, but I just dismissed them away um, because I, I liked what I was doing. You know, it when I drank and when I when I used um, at this time, it was still just pot and, and, and drinking and I liked the way it made me feel. You know, I I kind of suffered with a little bit of depression and insomnia, like in my late teens and early twenties, and you know that that helped with both of those things. So these people that came to see you were they Christian friends? These same yeah. people that would be that you'd beat on the doors with and yeah. you shared Christ? Yeah, some of them were. Yeah, and then I was still I was still in church at this point, but was just hiding. You know, just hiding all of all of my using and drinking. You know, I wasn't. Um, I'm sure it was obvious, it started getting obvious towards the end. So, but yeah, then, um, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I, I was, I was at college and college started getting in the way of my using and drinking. So then I dropped out of college and just basically pursued a career of, uh, using alcohol and drugs at that point. And it didn't take long for things to just nosedive for me. Um, I had a series of relationships that failed. Uh, one relationship um, I was in for several years. And when that one failed, I used that, as a, that, that pain that I felt from the loss of that relationship as just an excuse to just use even more. Just a way to numb, numb the pain. Yeah. And... I, you know, of course, was not really going to church any at this time and had had pretty much walked away from my relationship with God altogether. And so that's where the opiates, you know, came in for me. Um, you know, it started off with taking pills and within probably six months progressed to, to IV drug use of, of opiates. And um, that's where, you know, all the arrests started happening. Um, you know, couch surf, a lot of couch surfing going on. Uh, my mom was, you know, knew what was going on during all this. And there'd be brief periods of time where she'd let me stay at home. Um, but you know, I was in and out of jail so much that, uh, you know, she eventually, you know, cut that off, you know, thankfully, um, she, she didn't enable me for too long. Right. Um, and, and that was one of the things that, that led, 
led me to get help was, you know, she wouldn't help me anymore. And that's really good because as I've been in recovery for a while, I've got to talk to the parents. I've seen the other side mm, yeah. of that. And a lot of times I'll tell parents of maybe a, someone or a loved one that's got someone struggling that, you know, the, the best thing we can do is quit enabling them. Yeah. And we, we know that every addict or any, anyone in recovery period has to find their bottom. And by stop paying the bail and bailing them out, then sometimes we can help raise the bottom for mm-hmm. somebody. Yeah. And so that's good what you say about you know, your mom finally came to that point where she quit helping you. It wasn't yeah. that she didn't love you. No. She just couldn't quit. She couldn't keep enabling you to do yeah. those things. Yeah. And I, and I had several bottoms along the way. Um, I remember one of them was I was downtown somewhere in a park and I was um, – you know, out of my mind on drugs or whatever. And I remember it was sunrise and the sun was just coming up and there was like a lot of colors, you know, in the sun sunrise or whatever. And I remember looking up at the sunrise and thinking, what a beautiful colors. I was I was seeing things in those colors. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think you know what I'm talking about. I know exactly what you're saying. So... Uh, you know, I was having a good experience or whatever, and then I look up in the sky and I see this one lone bird flying over, and I had my mouth open because of how great the colors were to me or whatever, and the bird pooped right into my mouth. <laughs> I was I was literally fixing to say that, and you went there. Yeah, you, you know that I was going there. And and my dad growing up always said that, like, a bird can't poop while it's flying. Yeah. Well, that's not true. He can't. Yeah, they very can. much can. Huh? Yeah. So, it, it's, and I remember laughing so hard at myself, but when I got back to my apartment I was living in at the time, like, after the laughing was over... Like, I uh, I remember the thought that I was having right when that happened was, you know, what does it all mean? What is what is my life? What does my life mean right now? And it was kind of a sobering moment. You know, I had one of those moment of clarities that, you know, you hear people talk about. They have a moment of clarity while they're in their addiction. And that was one of them for me because my life was. Yeah. So what the bird did, that's, that's it was what it was. Nothing but crap. Huh? Yeah, it was nothing but crap. So I I remember sitting there looking at myself in the mirror and just not recognizing myself at all. And that was the first moment where I was like, you know, I really need help. And so, of course, I didn't turn to the right place. I turned to the methadone clinic of all places <laughs> to get help. I didn't know, though. Right. You know, I didn't know that that wasn't really treatment. And um because I just I had some friends that had started going and they were telling me, oh, you know, it's it's better, you know. Um, I mean, that's all in how you look at it, I guess. But yeah. so that um, I started going to the methadone clinic a couple weeks after that. And, you know, the way they set those up is it's like they, they make you feel like it's treatment, but it was really just it's it was a way of kicking the can down the road for me i wasn't getting any real treatment i wasn't having to deal with any of my problems and uh, that's also where i met the mother of my daughter who would later become my wife too right and so <laughs> you know there's a lot of bad places to meet your your significant other uh and you know a bar is bad enough but a methadone clinic is probably way down on the bottom 
<laughs> not um, lovers lane huh? no that's that's not where you want to you want to meet you know the uh, your future future mate or whatever so anyway so that started our relationship and um you know she she became pregnant and then we later got married and um had my daughter on august uh the 30th 2007 and during all that i was just up and down you know i would do good for two or three months um be sober i mean i'd be miserable but and then i would relapse and we didn't have custody of our uh, daughter long um Maybe four months, five months after she was born was all that we had custody of her. Um, so so that, that was short-lived. And about a year after my daughter was born, we split up. And because there was just, you know, you have you have two addicts together. You know, it, it's just it's impossible. Seemingly, I know I, I, I do know people that have made it work, right. you know, and they recovered together. But to me, that's a rare very rare occurrence and so we kind of we parted ways after that and um you know she later passed away and you know which i use that as you know excuse number one to use even more and that it don't was, take much for us to come up no, with an excuse but no boy, we could really justify that yeah one. and i'll i'll i mean i'll just make i would make up any excuse and every excuse i mean i didn't even need something bad to happen to have an excuse to want to use like I, there was one time where in in the midst of all the getting arrested and stuff in court there was one time where i got all my cases dismissed i had like i had several different misdemeanors and i think a felony or two felonies and they got dismissed and I remember getting home that night and feeling so great that I wanted to celebrate. And so I went and used again right? <laughs> and got arrested that night. A lot of insanity, right? Man, it's like if the sky was blue, that was good enough reason to use for me. Or if it was raining. Or if it was raining. If it were, or if it was sunshining. Yeah. You know, anything worked. Yeah. But you know, one thing I've noticed, though, and everybody's story that I've ever talked to in recovery kind of follows the same pattern. Um, and it usually begins with our drug addiction being fun for a moment. Mm-hmm. I've never met anybody says it was just always bad. I mean, there were fun times in it, whether yeah. it be laying down with birds crap in your mouth or, yeah. or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, we, we have times where it was fun, but there comes a point in there to where it's no longer fun. It's where we're just kind of doing it to to live. Oh, yeah. Um, we, we, we lose our identity as a human anymore. It's literally we, we wake up to get high. Yeah. And at this point, the fun was long gone. The pain and the misery and the guilt and the shame um, were just so heavy on, on me that, uh, you know, I, I was I was suicidal, you know, frequently, you know, but just didn't, you know, I, I would think about, you know, shooting myself or doing something like that. But the one thing that kind of kept me from doing that is the thought of my mom finding me. You know, so, you know, thank God for a loving mom who who was always there for me and and loved me uh, even when I was unlovable. So that was kind of the one thing that kept me from doing that. But uh, but, you know, in and out of jails. And then I went, you know, to my first residential rehab and, uh, you know, stayed there for a while, came out, relapsed right off the gate, you know, 
uh, went to another one, came out. I had got kind of gotten stuck in this cycle. You know, I went to several different 30, 30 day, 28 day places or whatever. And uh, which wasn't long enough for me to even really get cleaned out, you know, good. Um, they would say they're, you know, your detox, you're ready to go. But uh, mentally, I was not. And so, you know, had, I guess spiritually, you were still kind oh, of dead man. there. Yeah. And I didn't have any kind of relationship with God. And I, I, I came into, uh, you know, a 12-step fellowship and i did find you know some some clean time i was sober for almost three years in there but and then i relapsed but looking back on that i I was really staying sober out of out of fear you know i was i never really felt free of my addiction um i was I, I my whole life was that 12-step fellowship there was nothing else that i did and so i was really religious and really um legalistic about making meetings i mean i was going to three meetings a day and you know nothing wrong with that you know that's what i needed at, at that time but um but i i didn't develop my spiritual life enough and i didn't do all the things that they told me to do in there I didn't. I wasn't really helping people. I wasn't sponsoring people. I wasn't doing much service. Really, the only thing I was doing was going to a lot of meetings. So you just made meetings your god. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that's that's a good way to say it. And uh, you know, it, 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 I thought I was doing good, um, and just having the clean time. But I didn't know that my life could be so much better than that. And so I, I did relapse, and you'll see this as a common theme in a lot of people's relapses, a relationship that goes bad. And then, you know, you, you get depressed and everything, and then that, and that's what had happened to me after being sober for three years. Um, I had gotten depressed. And for me, whenever I hit a certain level of depression, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make myself not feel that way. And so I didn't reach out like – like I knew to do. I didn't reach out and tell on myself or any of that stuff. You forgot everything you learned in three years. Oh, yeah. And and that was really when I figured out that knowing how to stay sober is not the same as staying sober. And and self-knowledge just doesn't, doesn't do anything for you. You can be an expert in addiction and in recovery and still not be able to stay sober. There's a huge difference there. And, uh, you know, I didn't still didn't really have any kind of relationship with God. So I stayed in active addiction about five or six months after that. And because that's all it took until I had nothing. Three years of sobriety. You know, I had a few possessions. You know, I had a nice truck and I was living in a nice house and had, you know, I mean, it was five months later. I had pawned everything, including my cell phone, had nothing. So Pawned it all. Pawned it all. It was all gone. Yeah, I pawned my cell phone, and then I was like, how am I going to call the dope man? You know? <laughs> I was like... Didn't think that didn't all the way through. Didn't even think it all the way through. That's how crazy and insane I was at that time. So that's when I went to uh, the rehab in New Orleans that was... Um, you know, a Christian uh, transformation ministry. And, uh, you know, my, my mom recommended it to me and you know, she wanted me to be in a faith-based place. And I, I remember just fighting that tooth and nail going, I don't want to go to a faith-based place because I don't want, I just, I, I knew 
that going there, you know, I would have to really change, you know. And so I remember talking to somebody, um, one of my, uh, somebody in recovery about it. And they were like, do they have food there? And I was like, well, yeah, I'm guessing they have food there. And he was like, well, you need to go because you look horrible. You know? <laughs> it's more than you've got now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was weighing 120 pounds maybe, and I weigh 160 now. Right. I mean, I was skin and bones and and probably some of the worst physical and spiritual shape of my life. So I had kind of painted myself in a corner. I'd gotten fired from my job, of course, and all that stuff. And so I'll go on down there. And to Bible boot camp. To Bible boot camp. Man, it was crazy. The first day, I'm, I'm going through withdrawals like crazy, sweating. And they're like, they have this chant that they do every morning where they're like chanting the Ephesians 6, like putting on the, the armor of God. And I was looking around like wide-eyed going, what have I got myself into, you know? It is crazy because it's coming from the same guy who was knocking on doors as a yeah. teenager telling everybody about Christ. That's how far I was away from God at this point was just, it was it was like, I was like, I'm, I'm at a cult thing now, right. you know? So it was, it was, but I didn't really have much hope as far as that I would really get better and that God would restore me at all. Um, and, and I didn't have like a, like a lightning bolt moment while I was, while I was at that Christian rehab where it was like, okay, God, you know, I, I believe now or anything like that. They made us read our Bible every morning and it was just like a slow seeping in uh, of God's word into my life every morning. You, they, they said you didn't have to read it. But you had to have it open for an hour. Just act as if you're doing it. Right? Yeah. They said, you, whether you read it or not, it's up to you. And so I'd sit there and I'd try to not read it, but there was nothing else to do. It was either that or see the paint dry on yeah. the wall, right? So I started reading and just slowly the, the, the Holy Spirit started working on me. And, you know, after I'd been there three or four months, you know, I, I started feeling better and I started praying again, and I started to have a little hope that the future was going to get better and that God did have a plan for my life and did want good things in my life. And so I made a decision, you know, that I was that I wanted to really surrender my life to God at that point. And so I did right around the fourth, fourth or fifth month mark, somewhere in there, I decided I wanted to, to really make Jesus Lord of my life again. That's a big deal um, to really make that commitment. And, you know, I, I've heard that story a lot with Christians where they, you know, maybe had a, a walk where they walked just step by step with the Lord and they, they drift off and they go back, you know, the way they were going before they met him. Yeah. And everything just seems to go south from there. Oh, yeah, definitely. And so I stayed there for, you know, another six months after I graduated so I'd been there about a year and three months, and um, you know, not by accident, this this transformation ministry was right across the street from the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, and um, I left this part out in the beginning. But er- early on, when I was a teenager, I felt a calling to the ministry, and uh, you know, when I went to college, that's originally what I was pursuing. And so while I was at the the transformation uh, ministry or whatever, I remember thinking, that's no accident that that seminary is just literally right across the street from me. 
But but then all the stuff started coming in my head. Well, I'm not good enough to do that. God doesn't want to use me anymore. I burnt my chance. I bur- up. Yeah, that that's gone now. And uh, you know, which was just the enemy talking. And so um, I had met several people at the seminary, and long story short, you know, God opened up a way for me to actually go to the seminary and finish the degree that I never finished years earlier. Wow. And so that was amazing. And so I went I went to the seminary, and it took me a couple of years. And, um, you know, I, I would spend a whole another 30 minutes on that, uh, you know, things like sitting in seminary class with a bunch of people who want to be pastors and thinking well, they're going to find me out, you know, what are they going to do when they find me out, you know? And, uh, but, but over time, you know, I, I, I realized that, you know, God can use anybody and particularly wants to use people like us with our stories to help people that are going through struggles with addictions. And so I graduated the seminary in 2016. And then later that year I had met, my 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 wife now uh dakota we got married in december of 2016 and um you know you did a really good job because yeah. I, didn't, I don't know like my wife will ask me what year are you married i'm like i don't know and I, I try to count on my fingers and i never get it right yeah december 16th i'll never forget so um but during all that time that i was uh doing that i was i was i had my whole recovery had changed i was serving i was serving in my local church i was going i was active at celebrate recovery i was working the steps and i was praying and i was i was exercising the spiritual disciplines and all that kind of stuff you know my recovery was completely different than before um and i had accountability in my life I had a sponsor i had sponsees you know, i was doing all the things that were suggested to me um because i just didn't want to go back again well service is a big thing that we hear in recovery yeah. and, and it takes commitment right oh yeah and i think a lot of people lose sight of that it's like service is really or at least for me i can say that you know sometimes it is doing the things you don't want to do at times there's there's times I do things that bring me joy. Uh, more times I try to work in the things that bring me joy rather than the things that I have to do. But there are times I've got to be there when I don't want to be there because I said yeah. that I would. And I and that's the great thing about me in recovery today. And I would assume you are the same. That now my word means something. So if I tell yeah. you I'm going to be there, I'm going to help you do something, or I'm going to serve and give back. I'm going to be there. Oh yeah. And and my whole personality in that regard has changed this time. Uh, you you know, for the most part, if I say I'm going to do something, I'll die trying to do it. And that was not me before. I was Mr. Flaky. I'll flake out on you in two seconds. And so, you know, the, the Lord, I really feel like my life just started over, you know, this last time I got sober and uh, in, in a good way. And, um, you know, the blessings that have come from sobriety this time and from, from God um, are just incredible. Uh you know, in 2017, I moved back home uh, to the Birmingham area uh, to take a, a job as worship pastor at a church in uh, McCullough area. And I, I love my church family here. Um, and I recently, um, just last year, got ordained. And that was a big moment for me. Um, you were here. And, uh, that was. That was know, a big deal. I was just like, I can't believe that, you know, just how far I've come from just a few years ago and just what a reminder that was that nobody's ever too far from God's grace 
And yeah, when you're sitting in a jail cell, you're not really thinking about getting ordained. And but you know, <laughs> no. no, that's how we. You know, when we talk about God taking a mess and turning it into a message, that's what He does. Yeah. And I believe there's listeners that are listening to your story right now, hearing this and going, "There's just no way that it could change for me." And dude, I've seen God change you, and I've seen God take your your just shortcomings and turn them into just great things and a way that you get to talk to other people just like you're doing today. Yeah, and like, you know, whenever I think about that I was strung out on heroin and just a complete junkie to now, you know, I'm an ordained pastor that gets to further his kingdom, you know, I I get emotional, you know, because it's just... I don't, it's not something I think about every day, you know, because I've had a few years, you know, sober now and you just get complacent a lot of times and you don't, you don't, you don't thank God for what a blessing it is that he's done for you in your life. But, you know, whenever I do stop and think about it, like just now, you know, I really get, um, you know, really thankful that, and I'm filled with gratitude that, that God has brought me as far as he has. And so, Yeah. So uh, since you've been in recovery, what um, I know that you attend Celebrate Recovery meetings. Um, I know that you've had a past in AA and still go to some AA meetings. What could you say has been the difference this time maybe than the last time you were sober? Because I think a lot of people in recovery um, start out good sometimes and maybe fall off the wagon, and then they try to get going again. Um, this time is, I mean, just looking at you and talking to you, your attitude, your demeanor, everything is different about you. What would you, what would you say is some long-term maintenance things that you do to stay sober today? Well, before I, I I didn't really I I had a sponsor before when I had the other uh, period of of clean time, but I I didn't use them like I was supposed to, um, which he pointed out all the time, and um, so I feel like now I, I use my sponsor and I I talk to my sponsor. You, you're my sponsor, so uh, <laughs> I talk I talk to my sponsor all the time now. And, um, you know, I, I, I see my sponsor every week. I'm just in more contact with my sponsor. Um, and I feel like I, I talk m- more on a regular base, basis with, with other people in recovery. Um, and the other, the, the biggest thing is that my recovery is Christ-centered now. Where before, you know, in the other fellowships, of the other 12 step fellowships before it was just like they have the whole your higher power and it's whoever or whatever you want it to be and i didn't it wasn't it wasn't christ when i did it before i just left it vague you know and i didn't really want to take it any further than that but now i know that jesus christ is the only true power source that's strong enough to keep me free uh, of my addictions and hurts and habits and hangups. So that, I mean, that's the biggest thing that's different. And then, you know, service uh, is the other thing. I, I look for opportunities to serve where um, before I was really just looking for ways to serve myself. Um, yeah. Well, I know that um, you and I both, you know, we talk about the 12 steps a lot and, I, I'm going to catch you on the, on the spot with this one. You didn't know this question was coming. But what would you say is your favorite step? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I would have to say step 10 
is is probably the one that I've benefited the most from in my recovery, mainly because I, I never wanted to look at myself, you know, and take an honest look at myself and do any kind of inventory or whatever, um, which I know you do those things in step four and five and six and seven. I mean, the whole 12 steps is about an honest uh, accounting of, of who you are and what you are. But step 10 for me, the whole continue to take a personal inventory as far as long-term maintenance is the one that helps me the most. Um, I, I journal uh, periodically, um, probably considered regular compared to some people, but you know, I make fear list, I make gratitude list, and um, I'll even ask my wife sometimes, you know, to as far as inventory goes, I'll ask her, have I seen depressed this week? Because I know I can't truly take an honest look at myself um, where other people can see things in me that I can't. And that's why it's good to have that accountability. Um, that, that's what a sponsor's for. That's what accountability partners are for is to help you take your own your own inventory when you may not be able to see it. So I think I think that that daily um, and, and even having daily spot checks um, where you know the whole you can start your your day over at any tw- any any point in the twenty four hours is great um, great thing to think about sometimes because sometimes you'll just have days where you need to just do stop and do a spot check and say look I'm gonna start my day over right now you know and it's just a good way whenever I start feeling restless and discontent to just stop and and figure out where I am why am I feeling like this. And uh, it, it helps me to actually deal with my feelings. That makes a lot of sense. And that's really good stuff that you could ask someone, do I look depressed? You know, that's it's crazy that as simple as that sounds, you should know if you're depressed. But if you're caught in the moment, you don't know it. Mm-hmm. You don't see the changes. Yeah. That's the reason it's so important to have a sponsor. That's so. That's the reason it's so important to even go to your meetings and stuff is so that people can recognize a, a change in you, a difference in you. Yeah. And if you're just the Lone Ranger who pops in once a month, you call your sponsor once a quarter to say that you're, you're calling your sponsor – he hasn't talked to you in forever, so he doesn't know that there's any changes. Yeah. And there's probably no one better to know than your spouse yeah. and what's going on with you. And that's cool to have an, a, a conversation like that and be open enough with your spouse. Yeah. And one thing about being in recovery is I, I, after being in recovery for a little while, like, you know, I'll have serious conversations at the drop of a hat with anybody, you know, because the stuff you talk about in recovery is oftentimes serious. And so. Um, you know, I'm not scared to talk about how I feel or, or my emotions. Uh, so, yeah. You know, I'm the same way with that. And I think a lot of that is the step process. It's not yeah. one particular step, but you've you've become vulnerable in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. So now the things that were so taboo that men, we can't talk about, it's okay to talk about mm-hmm. those things yeah. now. Yeah. Well, Jason, I want to thank you for being so real with us and, and all of our listeners. And, you know, as Christians, I think one thing that we're, that's one thing we're really missing in the church today is just being honest and open. So many times we go in, how are you doing? We just say fine. And, right. and we miss those serious conversations. So thank you. And one thing that I believe that you taught me today is that it's okay not to be okay. Yeah. If I'm feeling depressed, it's okay to be depressed, but I don't need to sit there in it. I need to talk to someone about it. 
And one way that I believe that any of our listeners can do that is by reaching out and looking on the website at CelebrateRecovery.com. They can go to Group Locator. They can find a group close to them where there's people just like me and you there that they could talk to and be honest and open about any situation yeah. they're going, going through. And also, we would love to hear from any of our listeners, and they can contact us at SoberHolicPodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's SoberHolicPodcast at gmail.com. And so with all those things, I guess that wraps up another show. And so I'm Roger. And I'm Jason. And we're signing off.